0: Hello listeners, I'm Kathy Fang with Below the Radar, a Knowledge Democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. On this episode, our host Amda Hall is joined by Dr. Timothy Eatman and Mohamed Farj. Timothy is an educational sociologist, professor, and the inaugural dean of the Honors Living Learning Community at Rutgers University, Newark. Mohammed is a junior at Rutgers University and a scholar at the HLLC. Together, they discuss community-engaged scholarship and research, and the importance of creativity and personal narrative to community engagement. Enjoy the episode.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome again to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us. I'm really excited to have Timothy Eatman and Mohamed Farge with us today. We are going to be talking about community engagement and community-engaged research. I'm going to ask, uh, why don't
2: we start with you, Timothy, to introduce yourself a little bit. Yes, uh, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And, you know, below the radar is like where I like to flow. So it's, it's good to, to be in this space with this dynamic theme. So my name is Tim Eatman. I'm an educational sociologist and I do, you know, work in the area of equity issues in higher education generally. But a lot of my research is focused on publicly engaged scholarship and faculty rewards, frankly, how we acknowledge the contributions of knowledge making in the 21st century, which are far more expansive than what they used to be. One expression of that is my current work as the inaugural Dean of the Honors Living Learning Community at Rutgers University, Newark, where I'm also a faculty member. And I hail from Harlem, New York, My graduate work or doctoral work was at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, and a master's from an HBCU, the Howard University, which you may be aware of. And my undergrad was in New York at Pace University. But the work that I'm doing now with the Honors Living Learning Community, which is a part of the Honors Enterprise at Rutgers Newark, has me engaging these stars like Mohammed Farge, who I'm delighted to be on with today. And I'm excited for us to have some discourse around what's going on in the HLC and how that is relating to his evolution as a young scholar. And so I'm gonna invite Mohammed to share a little bit about his background.
3: Absolutely. Now that's a tough person to follow in, in any in any realm, but particularly in this space, I'll do my best. But yeah, my name is Mohammed Farj and I'm also I attend Rutgers University in Newark, I major in finance and I minor in social justice part of the honors living learning community as a scholar at Rutgers Newark right now, class of 2018. So I'm a junior right now. So really excited to be a part of some of the, some of the initiatives that Dean Eamon speaks about and, and also bring forth ideas that I may have that I think that could definitely be useful in community impact. And I'm just very excited to be here, very excited to work with Dean Eamon, very excited to, like Dean said, have that dialogue about, you know, the topics you're going to bring forth to us on. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and you know, as I said to you before, we started recording that combination of social justice and finance is such an important set of skills to bring together. It's interdisciplinary by nature, but oftentimes lacking in social justice movements or bringing to bear those pieces. And you know, Timothy, we met a long time ago at you know various conferences. I was just starting my job as a staff person in community engagement and looking to hear different voices, just trying to understand this work a little better because I come from working in government and nonprofits and this type of thing. And university community engagement has a long history in the U.S., which is slightly different than Canada. But I'm just wondering if you can speak a little bit about the importance of research within community engagement, because that's a piece that you have really articulated very well about the importance of the evidentiary part of community engagement, why it's important and how to build on that work or broader impact.
2: My story is not possible without higher education, period, full stop, end of sentence. (laughs) You follow me. It's not possible. And I won't go into the history of higher education, although I could because I'm a student of higher education. But for me, this milu is really about knowledge making. And we get fancy and we talk about scholarship and all of that, right? But when it comes down to it, knowledge-making happens in a whole lot of places. (laughs) I have a daughter who's in an MD-PhD program now. And her great-grandmother just transitioned a few months ago. She spoke no English, only Spanish. And she was the midwife in the village in Colombia where she grew up. Mita transitioned at 103 years old, and my daughter is also fluent. But I love hearing them have a discourse about obstetrics. You follow me? Whereas Afrikali had an appreciation for the latest state-of-the-art technology. She also knew that Mita's perspective on knowledge-making, about reproduction, about delivering new humans to the world was as valuable as some of the technology that she has. And so when you ask me about research and publicly engaged scholarship, and please hear me well, I talk about publicly engaged scholarship. A lot of people talk about community engagement and that's fine. I don't quibble over the semantics, but there's something about going beyond just public engagement because, you know, gentrification is public engagement. (laughs) You know, know, the idea of scholarship and knowledge-making wrapped up in the core of publicly engaged work is really quite powerful to me, and it really presses us to think in more sophisticated ways about what knowledge-making is and how knowledge relates beyond the fields. You talked a minute ago about Muhammad's penchant for finance and community engagement, right? We forget that folks like Bernie Madoff, you may not know him in Canada, but the dastardly Ponzi scheme that, you know, like he went to college. And so if we're gonna heal our communities, if we're gonna do the kinds of ameliorate to things in our society, we need young farges to approach and bring to bear an imagination around the use of finance, but in ways that are healing, in ways that pitch towards democratic practice and justice. And we need an evidentiary base for that. I hope I'm not rambling. I wanted to give a few examples, uh, but we can certainly talk in more detail about the importance of research, creating an evidentiary base that is not restricted to the academy, Knowledge does not only live at Rutgers Newark. Our, our, uh, knowledge lives in our mosques. Knowledge lives in our civic centers and in our synagogues and in our churches. And knowledge lives with our fraternities and so There was a whole lot of knowledge there when I attended that beautiful tribute to Jim Green in the memorial that was held there where you invited me. And so I'm very sensitive when we think about knowledge making, not to think of it in a shrinking imaginative way, but with prophetic imagination, to think about the variety of artifacts of knowledge that can be produced with respect to publicly engaged work. I think I'm rambling.
1: No, no, not at all. I was going to ask, muhammad you as a grad student, what draws you into the work in terms of community engagement, your own sort of areas of interest, how you try to pull this Together. I mean, it's a problematic world of authoritarian populism and climate change and so many things wrong with the world. It'd be wonderful to get your perspective on what brings you into this kind of work. Did you
2: call him a grad student? Yeah. (laughs) Well,
1: yeah. Well, you already talked like a grad student, and I know you're going there. So, So,
3: and that's a really interesting question that you pose as to what really captivated me to go into the space. What made me want to say, for example, apply for the HLC, the Honest Living Learning Community because of the work that they do. And like Dean said, the engagement that they have, the public engagement and the community engagement that they have. And so I remember having a conversation earlier with Dean Eman and saying that if it wasn't Rutgers, Newark, HLC, so the three layers of Rutgers, of Newark, of HLC, then I would have went to Howard University at an HBCU to truly understand and to truly gauge the more effective ways to really connect with people just of the alma mater and of the people who attended that university. But I believe one of the key reasons that got me into the space is because at a very young age, I knew that I understood that I wanted to live for a very long time, you know, and, and with that, I wanted to live in a place that I wanted to live in you know it's as simple as looking at it as moving into a neighborhood and you look at the pros and cons of the neighborhood of things that come along with that and this is a little bit more tricky because you're not really moving into a space but you're actually creating the space and you could partake in that creation and partake in that development and the earlier you get into it the better the more input you have as to really figuring out what you want to see in the community that you live in, that you wake up in every single day. And before I attended Rutgers, I was really engaged with a councilman here at Ward E in Jersey City. I was really engaged with the president right now at the Jersey City Board of Education, Musa Ali. And that all falls under the same umbrella. From a grand scheme of things, that may seem all over the place in terms of, you know, as you mentioned, this climate change and things that you could focus on, but that all falls under the umbrella of wanting actionable change that you know would better the society that you live in today and I get asked this all the time from both ends of the spectrums from social justice scholars and from individuals who work in the finance world as to why is that my makeup why do I major in finance but also decide to minor in social justice because you don't want to spread yourself too thin and I feel like it's that Dean I hope you speak a little bit about this as we go on but that shrinking imagination of You could only really focus on one thing. So why did you decide to choose two things, right? But when you really put things into perspective and, you know, God willing, we live a hundred years and we want to make those hundred years as impactful as possible and our entire purpose is to make this world a better place while we leave it as it was when we first came in. Then you start to understand that these things are really interdependent and really is the reason why we live in the society that we live in today for better and for worse. And so you could start making actionable change. And I think the earlier you get into certain aspects of life, the better.
1: Wow, that's such an amazing perspective you're bringing to bear on this work. You know, in terms of immediate crises that we have, obviously the pandemic has brought a lot of things onto the surface. The crises existed before, but this thing just placed it onto the surface and made it really visible. And and I'm wondering how... You both think about how it affects knowledge making, higher education, the community at large. I mean, obviously the American election is one simple, and and certainly being north of the border, these (laughs) ideas don't just stop at the border, they come up here as well and affect things broadly in my class as well. You know, we're talking about India and Brazil and Turkey and real challenges to what like is happening around democracy and in communities and And this idea of enemies within the country, enemies outside of it. And, you know, how are you thinking through the pandemic kind of period and all of the stuff that's come up to the surface? I mean, Tim, you're a dean now, so you've got a whole lot of people to answer to and and things like that. But how do you think about your role, you know, being situated at a university about what it's going to mean to come out on the other side of this pandemic in a very changed world?
2: Wow. I'm kind of glad this is not a video podcast because that way folks don't get to see how white my hair is. (laughs) You're kind, you're not saying anything about how much whiter my hair is now than when you saw me last. (laughs) This is not disconnected from all of the stuff that we're going through. It's actually hereditary as well, but it's an important point, right? There are two or three things I want to just touch on about what the pandemic has meant in terms of my particular work. One is that as a sociologist, it has really provided some profound examples of what we have been talking about in this work. Profound examples. So, you know, it's a little bit more difficult for those who do not want to see (laughs) to say (laughs) that structural racism doesn't exist. I mean, they can say it, they still say it. Right. But it's, it's hard. It's real. It's real hard for them to like say it with conviction. You feel what I mean? Because it's, you know, and, you know, for a community like the honors living learning community, where we challenge young people to grapple with this stuff, you know, Mohammed, I'm not sure if it was his year, but we often do a contrarian paper in local citizenship in the global world, which is one of our mm. courses. And, uh, you know, you choose your topic and and you rebut yourself. Right. That means that you might have to watch, you know, a couple weeks of Fox News, a couple weeks of MSNBC, a couple weeks of BBC. You follow me so you can get your arguments really together. Anyway, I'm rambling again. I don't mean to. The point of it is the illuminative power sociologically, unparalleled. I mean, I almost don't even have to prepare for class. I mean, I will, you know what I mean, I could just say, I really almost don't. Second thing is this, I believe that we will emerge from this pandemic um, and Mohammed with a more clear than ever sense of how important it is to be together. One of the things that kept me up at night, Mohammed, and, you know, he's my intern. So, you know, we were all close. Do you feel what I mean? And he knows this. One of my things that kept me up at night is when we had to translate our admissions process from an in-person process to an online process. And it'll take too long to go into why that's so important. Suffice it to say, I know every one of my students' names. Do you feel what I mean? You cannot walk, Muhammad will bear me out. You can't right. walk me on campus. I'm like, well, how, you know, right? I'm challenged because right now the current cohort, I don't know all of their names. And that sits on me heavy because the work that we're doing is not just about content. It's about relationship. And in fact, you know, I talk about senses of engagement that I won't relay here, but they are so critical to this work. So I think that as we emerge from the pandemic, we will have a renewed sense of how important it is to be together. Finally, I'll say this, we have never known more powerfully or had glimpses of the challenges that folks are navigating. You know, I have students on campus, some because they made a strong case for why Even though classes were mostly virtual, they wanted to be on campus as a new college student. And I get that. But I have some students that have to be on campus. If they're not on campus, they're homeless. um. Yeah, totally. And so, you know, when we think about getting glimpses of the needs that people have, you know, it really gets to be really powerful. I'm going on too long here. Please, mohammed No,
1: no. And Mohammed, I think, you know, from your perspective, coming in as a student and just a different generational perspective, what the pandemic has meant to your own university experience and where that takes your own thinking.
3: Right. Just even bouncing off of what Dean said and even to your earlier question as to what has this pandemic done in this in knowledge making in general, I think it's forced people to do the work. You know, I think we were living in a very complacent environment where, for example, it was okay. So Dean Eamon speaks about how he knows every single one of, and I could testify to that, every single one of his students as the Dean of our program, that you're not going to find that everywhere. And I think now with the pandemic, institutions are incentivized to put a little more care into their processes because they can't be as complacent or careless and how they invite people into their respective spaces so with that i'll speak to this a little bit the reason why it was so difficult for the hlc to shift from in-person interview process to a virtual process was because they brought you in to feel your energy you know they brought you in to, to hear your well said, so. your side comments your your off-the-cuff comments your body positioning your body language to you know how are you going to respond when you're challenged in a way and again as a junior you've done your fair share of interviews that isn't as prevalent as the hlc so when you shift from that to that you understand what you're missing out on in understanding who students are before there was a very archaic i believe formula as to how to assess knowledge very archaic in regards to whether it be letter grades whether it be a specific metric that needs to be followed by certain students and so with that it was easier to just Pinpoint students from XYZ University because they had the right knowledge, quote unquote, based off what the formula says. But now, with the pandemic, when that's being challenged, that system is being challenged as is that really a reliable, robust system? Places are finding ways to engage with students or with people in general virtually to really understand who's going to be brought into a space. Because, for example, a 4.0 from the most prestigious university may not mean the same in a virtual environment you know and, and it's important that we understand who we're bringing into our home whereas before it was okay to let that slide because of the system that that was brought up and brought forth and as a student at Rutgers University and particularly at Newark and being a part of the HLLC one thing that i found very important that i didn't really notice was important is the support system that you have that you need to trudge along and that's really what it is you know as beautiful as you could speak about community there's a lot of gritty work that goes into it there's some days you don't want to get up and open the laptop because it's right next to bed you know and you've been doing the same process for now what dean a, a year yes sir you know so so on day 221 you need that extra push that that community gives you and not a lot of universities and i'll go as close to saying about 90 percent of universities don't necessarily do that why because it doesn't fit their bottom line and and that's really important to understand as a student really being aware as to what is important in this time because god willing with everything working out we are going to get out of this and we're going to look back at these times and going to pull out the greatness of it and also understanding why things were so bad and how we could put that behind us.
1: Yeah, I found myself in teaching my graduate liberal studies class, the ease by which can bring guests into class. I owe a lot of dinners to people now because uh, they jumped in because like no one wants to listen to me on Zoom for three hours. I got to make it boring. I, I'm teaching this summer and similar to semester in dialogue, we interview students before we come in. We want to meet them in person. And also it's a cohort based program. So it's full time. We're with them. Nine in the morning till four thirty every day and in the right. session. It's a really intense and but we're doing the interviews online right now, and we're gonna be doing the whole thing online. And it's gonna be such a different experience. And previously it required everyone to actually be in the room, but we're gonna have a student from Saudi Arabia, we're gonna have a student from other places, and so it will be a wonderful experiment. But as an instructor, we have so much to learn from our students and how to do that too. So it it has been tough and interesting, but both the opportunities and challenges of technology come to bear. I have a question, Timothy, for you. I know that you had spent a lot of time with Imagining America for a long time, and we don't have that same organization in Canada. But wondering if you can speak a little bit to that organization and the value that you got out of it and the kind of work that they kind of laid the groundwork for that still kind of resonates in the U.S. Because I think we have a lot to learn from it here in Canada.
2: Yeah, you know, I love to talk about this. I go to the University of Michigan for a postdoc after my PhD at Illinois. I finish a postdoc and Begin as the first director of research for this national consortium, Imagining America Artists and Scholars in Public Life. One of the first things I learned is that I need to be far more humble about what my quantitative, analytic, methodological approaches mean for knowledge making. Imagining America centers on civic engagement and the power of the humanities and the arts. And anyone who knows me and has followed my work can see a through line from Imagining America to the Honors Living Learning Community at Rutgers, Newark, because our primary pedagogy is humanities and arts. And I could give several examples of that. I will say that Imagining America now headquartered at the University of California, Davis, with an amazing faculty director, Erica Cole Arenas. Who you should interview for this podcast, I think, I'd be glad to make the introduction, is still in the business of really raising some questions about what is America and what is democracy and how can we advance the aims of a democratic society by not bracketing out the humanities and the arts. One of my graduating seniors, her name is Vivian Peralta, just got a five years of full funding for a PhD in biosciences at a university out west. And Vivian, I mentioned her and Mohammed knows her because, you know, she's going to be a research scientist without question. She's amazing. Right. But um, she's an artist. <laughs> now I wish it was a video podcast that I would show you her art. Right. But she doesn't even talk about herself as an artist. You got me? Because it's so much a part of who she is, like the way she breathes and the way she thinks and the way she does her science. And she's interested in entomology, right? Is so steeped in the arts, right? I had a meeting today with some of the facilities people for our new building, 48 New, and a piece of her artwork that was generated in our class, Local Citizenship in a Global World, is going to be in the lobby of the new building. You follow what I mean? As a mural. (laughs) I really wish I could show it to you. What's my point? You asked about the importance of the arts and humanities in general, imagining America, and that ethos and that philosophy in particular. I don't think that we can shame on us if we try to do publicly engaged work community-engaged work and don't realize that you don't make cultural change without using cultural methodologies and strategies. And for that, we must look to the humanities. We must look to the arts. We must allow ourselves to be humbled, Dr. Eatman, with all your statistics. I remember working on a report uh, or promotion to tenure with the founding director, Julie Ellison. And I said, we got to put this table in this chart. She said, no, 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 we won't. I said what do you mean? Are we explain the very she said what's the story? People are moved by the story. What's the narrative? And so I became more muscular as a researcher when I really began to understand and embrace the importance not only of my beloved quantitative analysis, I'm a survey researcher, but opening up ways to invite the humanities and the arts into the space. Last thing I'm going to just say is I have a daughter who's in an MD-PhD program right now. She's at uh, third year, a student at Emory in Atlanta, but she's a ballerina. And, you know, I won't name her undergraduate institution. I love them. They got all my money. So, you know, I must love them. Uh, (laughs) But they told her that she couldn't be, uh, you know, she actually ended up in a bachelor's, master's neuroscience program at the institution because they were close to a medical school. But they say, you can't do a program and be a dance minor. And she said, oh, no, that's how I make sense of the world. That's how I breathe. And even now in med school, she's part of an Atlanta dance company. Because shame on us um, for bracketing this out of our young people. And it manifests in different ways. When I think of Mohammed, I think of an artist. Now, he's not a visual artist. He doesn't play any instruments that I know of. But the art of strategy is deeply embedded in how he rolls and how he thinks. Do you follow what I mean? I'm inspired every time I talk to him. You know, he owns that piece of it. And I'm talking, again, too much. But you you pressed a button when you talked about like, America. Um, So I'm going to say it's your fault.
1: <laughs> but I can also say, Mohammed, if you're doing social justice and finance, that automatically will make you a very good philosopher when you bring those things together, I guarantee. You. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit, Mohammed, about in your learning in these various disciplines, how are you bringing this stuff together to land down in the real world? How are you getting your hands dirty bringing this stuff together?
3: Right. So that's a really great question. And with that, I'm going to bring an anecdote. So I recently interned for a company, an amazing company at that. And when I was there, I was afraid that I was a little too, you know, the skills. Why
2: so cryptic? What's the company?
3: You know, know, it's it's the Royal Bank of Canada, right? And I do that because I also want to, want to be a little humble, but an amazing company. And I remember being afraid to bring some of the, the ideas that Dean Eatman said, talk about your story and talk about the story because people care and listen to the story before anything else. And so with that, I had the mindset that I had to be the most technical sound person and it's really important to be technical but that's not the entire story and I just bring that up because I've met two particularly great people and I just won't name their names just because I don't want to put them on the spot but if they will listen to this and they will know I am talking about them and I remember them telling me that it's about the human connection this speaking to the story and these are people who have been in the fields for decades and they said they can't tell you how many charts they've seen or how many interns that have came through the processes, just check a box, you know, and and don't really go into, you know, the work of being human. That is really important because at the end of the day, they want somebody that they could, you know, talk to and be with throughout the long, grueling days of the finance field. You understand how hectic that can get. And it was then that I understood that the traits that I learned from minoring in social justice and the skills of being personable, of you know, listening, of telling a story, and, and making sense of a story before anything else, is the same thing that's going to connect to everybody. It's, it's a universal language. It's not something that's only you know prevalent or useful in one field. It's something that can be appreciated across all spectrums. And and what I mean by that is, if somebody gave me a research report that I know nothing about, about for example how vaccines work, it's going to go right over my head if I read it from beginning to end. But if somebody can sit down and communicate to you the story of how effective they are and really take the time to understand your perspective and make it fit to you and to cultivate that story, to make it more, you know, as I said, as effective as possible to you for you to understand, then that is priceless, you know, and I'm very grateful because if it weren't for those particular people I met at RBC, then I wouldn't have understood that. I would have went a route that wasn't Mohammed Farge. You know, I would have went around trying to impress people in a way that wouldn't be impressive to myself, you know, and that wouldn't mean much to me, where now I have bi-weekly meetings, I would say, with very important people, with a global head of their specific fields, with managing directors, with directors, and every single time we have these meetings, we speak about how I'm very grateful, Because they take time out of their busy schedules where they're in calls, you know, from 6.30, 7 a.m. all the way to 7 p.m. And then they give me an hour just to talk about life, just to talk about how things are going before getting into RBC or getting into, you know, financial trends or anything like that. And it all goes back to the baseline, the foundation of speaking, of engaging, of communicating with people. And that's a skill. And I wasn't even aware of, but very proud of, very, you know, and I will always let that be shown. And you can only hope people appreciate it. You can't force people to appreciate it. But what I found in my very short time here on this earth is that people may not know exactly what it is about you that they appreciate, but they always say there's something about that person that I, I just like speaking to him for however long. And to this minute, Dean Eamon could tell you, he'd have to remind me about the things that I do and things like that just because I don't think too much of it just because like I say it's just who I am but it goes a long way with these people because they understand like I said they've been in their field for a very long period of time they understand what's important and what's not at that point you know and when understanding and when really boiling it down I don't really compartmentalize the two you know you bring them together and it kind of fuses into who you are you know and I can't have a conversation about one without the skills of the other gleaming through, you know, how to be impactful in your respective community. That will bring forth in speaking whenever I'm in that finance world or bringing forth some of the analysis that needs to be brought forth in social justice to make particular people care about a certain issue because they need that quote unquote proof, you know, and it's really important for me to always let that be shown simply because that's who I am. And if, I was liked for another reason or this field valued something else that wasn't necessarily in me, then it'd be much tougher to really go head on in each respective road.
1: Absolutely. I really concur with what you just said, because I think in the work that I do, relationships and trust are so fundamentally important because then, when inevitable conflict occurs, you can actually work through it if you have the trust in the relationship. so trust in relationship isn't wrong when conflict arises. It can mean all sorts of existential problems, but then you exactly. can actually work through different, you can disagree, you can agree to disagree if the relationship is strong, because this is, I, I live in a small town, so you run into the same people over and over right. again, and so, <laughs> you know, you got to work through difference, that's just the way it goes. My final question to both of you is, what are you excited about your work right now that you're doing?
2: Go ahead, Mom.
3: That's a That's a good one. I'm excited. And this is not a cliche answer, but to continue the very thing that I just articulated and that's continue to develop those relationships, not only with those people that mean so much to me to the point where they're now considered mentors and so far to say family in regards to the advice and help that they give you, but to continue to connect to more people. You know, I was recently fortunate enough to have an opportunity to be a part of a Q&A session for interns coming into the company. And it was in that moment that I really had the same questions I had coming in. And I was honored and blessed to not only see one of my mentors on that call, give them advice, but also be in a position to complement that advice from my perspective. You know, and it's all about paying it forward and all about continuing what you're passionate about. And I'm very excited to pay it forward. And on the other end of the spectrum, I'm really excited to continue working with Dean Eamon and think about some of the great, you know, crazy ideas that we have. I know this will connect with people and and this is only crazy because it's never been done before. You know what I mean? So I'm really excited to continue that work. And and, and me and Dean Eamon joke about this all the time. We have a lifetime contract to each other where there's no exit strategy for either of us. So so we're gonna continue that forever. (laughs)
1: Fantastic.
2: I love you too, son, that that means a lot to me. Mohammed earlier talked about a concept that I often refrain, beware the shrinking imagination. What am I excited about? I am excited about playing a role that would assist not only young people like Mohammed, but also myself to stay in a space of prophetic imagination. And yes, that manifests in a bunch of different projects. And I'm gonna mention one before I stop here in a second. But at base, I believe that one of the reasons um, that we find ourselves in such difficult places of mistrust and inequity and darkness is because people are not imagining This may be part of my faith practice, but I think as a created being, if I'm not being creative, I got to be dark. I don't know if y'all heard that. As a created being, if I'm not being creative, if I'm not thinking with prophetic imagination, I have to have a zero-sum game. Or if you got some, I don't have, right? scarcity, lack. No, 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 no. Where I'm working on is in a different space. And you know what? I need those arts to remind me when I do find myself in that shrinking imagination space, which I do as a Black American man often, where I get impressed about the way that Black and brown bodies are devalued and the terrible history of our society and the challenges that just seem so stubborn, embedded and intractable. But there was a time when planes didn't fly. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm going to stay right there. And you know why? I can do it in part because of young people like Muhammad, who keep me questioning and keep me provoked and keep me growing do you know what i mean it's real i really am almost 100 now but they <laughs> but they they keep working with me and they teach me the new phrases and you know colloquialisms and and help me understand new concepts he definitely hasn't taught me the ps2 was it psp or whatever yet but i'm gonna get that i'm gonna get that too at one point one project that i just mentioned in closing that i'm really excited about Uh, You may know of the Interfaith Youth Corps, IFYC, led by Ibu Patel. They have a call for proposals out right now um, that would engage several institutions to get students trained and stipended to go into their communities to share factual information to mitigate vaccine hesitancy. And that's a nice project. I don't know if we will be selected, but we have an application in. And boy, I can just imagine some of our Honors Living Learning Community scholars going into their communities and helping to ameliorate this uncouth virus situation. Here again, I've spoken too much.
1: No, not not at all. It's been so wonderful to speak to both of you being out here in the West Coast to see your perspectives from there. It's just been lovely to share with you. And this isn't just a one-off podcast. We're hoping to have you join us at our conference in May 2022 and lots of other collaborations. We love the work that you're doing. We look to you for wisdom and inspiration and all those things as we build out our own projects and our own communities. And so just a bravo to both of you for the work that you do and the communities that you belong to. And Look forward to keeping this conversation going because it's already been going for ten years and well, even when we haven't. So, right.
2: been in touch, so. <laughs> take Back care, at you, brother. Back you. at you, man. Thank
3: you so much, sir.
0: Below the radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. This has been a conversation with Timothy Eatman and Muhammad Farge. You can find out more about the Honors Living Learning Community and other initiatives discussed in the episode in the show notes below. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar.